Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, fixing the cyber workforce problems it seems like every agency faces. Back to basics for one installation at the Department of Veterans Affairs and the digital path ahead inside the Department of Homeland Security. It's Tuesday, October 4th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Mitch Herkus is officially the permanent director of federal cybersecurity. He's been serving in that job as acting director in the office of the federal CIO at the Office of Management and Budget. He was director of state and local government affairs and public policy at Google before he went to OMB. An artificial intelligence bill of rights is out from the Office of Science and Technology Policy. It includes five principles for regulating AI. OSTP worked on the document for about a year, consulting with AI stakeholders and experts in and out of government. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Leaders from the Defense Department, CISA, and lots of other government agencies are coming to Cyber Talks this year. It's happening Thursday, October 20th at the Waldorf Astoria in downtown D.C. You can find a link to the agenda and registration in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Coast Guard, the National Nuclear Security Administration, and the Internal Revenue Service all have cyber struggles, according to overseers. Their challenges are representative of the issues every agency faces. Ron Marks is president of ZPN Cyber and National Security Strategies. He's non-resident senior fellow at the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council and former special assistant to the assistant director of Central Intelligence for Military Affairs. Ron, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Each of these challenges is different, and we'll go through them in turn. But I wonder if there is some overarching theme that you see in the reporting of my colleagues, Nahal Krishan and John Hewitt-Jones, on these cyber issues. Welcome, Ron. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I I like to go to a 100,000-foot level on this, and I'm going to throw in the private sector as well. We are in a long cyber war here. Uh, And part of it, it has to do with the battleground. This thing ultimately was never meant to do the kind of security that we're asking it to do. Uh, It was meant to share information and everything that we're doing at this point is retrofitting. And it's retrofitting in, in essentially conglomerates. I mean, I, you know, when I, when someone says to me, defense department, or they say to me, DOE, or they say to me, IRS, et cetera. These are multi-billion dollar corporations that have various and sundry units in them that do various and sundry things. So, you know, one size does not fit all. And, you know, we, we've also, you know, we're reaching out outside of this to form plans with sort of a one size fit all that doesn't always work. And the contracting community is trying to game it out. And it's not a question of what their responsibilities are. So there's a, there's a lot of depth to this thing. And I'm I'm a little frustrated by by the people I see out there. And this is not pointing at the IG or the GAO. I think they did very good reports, but it's it's sort of the uh, uh, you know the the stupid person syndrome. Uh, well, these guys, if they only knew what you know what I know here, we could get. Well, no, I'm sorry. I break the bad news. It's not only happening here in the public sector, but it's happening in the private sector as well. The challenge, though, and that I guess is the reason for the gravity of the situation is private sector company, even if it's a a very high level, big, uh, high stakes company, doesn't have the stakes that the Coast Guard has or the National Nuclear Security Administration has or the Internal Revenue Service has. 
No, absolutely. I mean, you you are dealing at a different level at this point, with with maybe the exception of some infrastructure companies and and the financial services. The fact of the matter is, with the Coast Guard, you're dealing with the safety of our nation, or certainly the maritime safety. We've seen a number of attacks now uh, on different aspects of uh, of maritime safety, both at the shipping level and at the port level. Uh, the IRS, to say the least, has some of the most sensitive information in the United States outside of perhaps the Office of Personnel Management, but much broader. Uh, than OPM. And if you're dealing with the energy guys and NSSA in particular, uh, you know, what am I supposed to say about the nuclear? Right. Uh, you know, this is this is a, the centerpiece. And again, trying to find systems that will work that are going to give you some insight into insider threat. You know, what kind of who are we going to look at? Um, the cyber force issue as well. I'll go back to the private sector side of this. Is those boys are having enough problems trying to find people and hire people at their salary levels, never mind a GS. So again, in all three cases, I, I take the, the message from the IG report at, at IRS and I take the message from GAO uh, and energy, but I'm, I'm telling you right now, at, or at the Coast Guard and energy, but you know, the fact of the matter is that again, pointing out just how difficult this really is. Is there a point where some of these uh, recommendations, some of these reports become desensitizing? And the reason that I ask that is here, this is Nihal's story on the Coast Guard. Government Accountability Office has called on the Coast Guard to improve its cyber workforce, set out six key recommendations the service should follow, including adopting measures to better determine staff needs and establishing a strategic workforce plan for cyber. I mean, and please, I have the ultimate respect for the folks that work at the Government Accountability Office, but I'm not sure we needed a GAO report to decide that the Coast Guard, along with every other organization, not picking on the Coast Guard, every other organization in the federal government um, is having issues with their cyber workforce. I mean, I hear it all the time, and they know it already. Absolutely. No, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm enough of a classical scholar to remember that there was, and I forget whether it was Pliny the Younger or whatever it was, that used to finish off all of his speeches with, and Carthage must be destroyed. Uh, and I think that's to some extent what you're seeing here, which is this repetition. And you're right. It does, you know, again, these people at J.O. are doing wonderful work. The IG guys, got to love them. But you hear it so often. And, you know, again, my response to this is, okay, that's fine. You've now made the recommendations. Uh, where do you get the money? Where do you get the program? Where do you get the people to enforce this? Um, you know, I would say on the macro level, uh, if we, you know, the national cyber director at this point, it would be nice to sort of lay things out from the OMB standpoint. But even at that level, this is this is a very tactical battle. And you know, you need the resources to put into it. You need the people to put into it. Uh, this is, again, not going to be easy. I don't, frankly, think sometimes that the repetition of this uh, up front is helpful. I tend to like the recommendations. You know, I, I'm with a line from a wonderful old movie uh, with Jack Nicholson. I'm, I'm drowning here and you're telling me the color of the water. Um, you know, how do I how do I get out of this? Yeah. And that, I think, is much more important. And that kind of guidance, I think, provides a much better template for how it is they do this, because it is complicated. I mean, you know, first of all, you're dealing with people, so that automatically puts a complication on it. Um, and, you know, even the little things, I was just thinking for a moment about the continuous monitoring, which I know DOD does, and now energy is going to take on. Um, 
you know, you got to have people who are going to do that. You got to have the technology that's going to do that. You have to make up your mind what the reporting requirements are. You have to go for the reporting requirements, what you're going to do about it. If you find someone doing it, you know, these are resource uh, taking items off the top of budgets that are already somewhat strained. And again, like the private sector, you know, security is a cost. And it's risk management in the following sense that you've got to decide how much, you know, how much money do you want to put in this thing? Are you going to put a lock in your door, an alarm in your door, buy a dog, buy a shotgun, buy whatever? I mean, those are the costs that you would incur by by attempting to secure your home. You know, this is the same thing for these guys, too, which is how much do you want to spend on this? Yeah. And clearly, there have been efforts, but also clearly people have decided, look, we can only do so much here we're not stupid about this we know the requirements here but you know how much can we do i don't want to turn this into a congress bashing episode of the daily scoop podcast but that's really ultimately where this comes down to because you're talking about the money rightfully so that of course has to come from congress and i know in the gao report at least about the coast guard cyber workforce the william m mac thornberry national defense authorization act for fiscal 2021 includes a provision for GAO to review issues related to the Coast Guard cyberspace workforce. GAO doesn't just make this stuff up out of whole cloth. Right, they bet. don't decide, oh, you know what? We haven't looked at this for a while. We should go do that. They work for Congress. Congress tells them to do it. So that's where this kind of this repetition and, and it, it seems sometimes beating people over the head, beating a dead horse comes from. It strikes me. Is that a no, unfair very, very read on so. my part? No, very much so. I, I One of the issues on this, and of course, in this Congress, we're about ready to lose of several people up there who really did know cyber fairly well. Mm -hmm. Cyber has been a bit of a blind issue up there. Uh, you know, part of it is, I was one of my friends joke, you got a bunch of poli sci majors trying to figure out tech. So there's a problem right there. Uh, the staffing up there is certainly much better than it was. Um, but again, you know, it's not it's not a sexy issue. I just gave a billion dollars for IT security at X. Well, you know, does how does that compare to buying a weapon system? How does that compare to buying a new computer system? How does that compare to adding personnel or cyber personnel or et cetera? And it does it gets lost or frankly. getting a bridge um, built in your district. Absolutely. I mean, you're you're dealing with guys who and women who wish to be reelected. Yeah. And I don't know exactly what kind of weight, uh, you know, having cyber protection has up until the moment, of course, something goes wrong, at which time people go around, well, why didn't you finance this thing? And alternatively, it's also, by the way, I think up to the people within when they're submitting the president's budget to make quite clear that, look, you know, we need X, Y, and Z. And I'll, I'll go back to one of my favorite hobby horses at this point. We, we've got this national cyber director. He is staffing up at this point. And one of the things that should be a requirement out of him when we go up to the Hill again, um, you know, in 23, when we start to lay out that budget, uh, frankly, when the budget committees meet, is to have him going up there and testifying, saying, look, this is an important item. We need to pay attention to this. Get it down to the committees. Let them testify to the committees as they start to lay out their uh, they start to lay out their budget levels, and let OMB make this a priority. So, I mean, there you know, there's enough guilt on all sides at this point. Um, you know, and again, it's making people pay attention to it. I mean, it's the squeaky wheel around here, and that's the way Washington works. If you're not going to push it, it won't get pushed. All right, we're going to keep pushing this rock up the hill, Ron. It's great to talk to you again. Thank you. Good talking to you too, Francis.
You can read more about the cyber struggles of all of those organizations in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast, coming on Wednesday's show, Inside the Tech Transformation at the Defense Logistics Agency. George Duchak, the Chief Information Officer at DLA, is on tomorrow's Daily Scoop Podcast. You can find that show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and always at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A Department of Veterans Affairs facility in Harlingen, Texas, is struggling with some basic blocking and tackling for technology security. That's despite an agency-wide effort to improve security. John Zangardi's chief executive officer, Red Horse Corporation. He's former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security and former principal deputy CIO at the Defense Department. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. And I call your attention to this work from the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General, the OIG conducting this inspection because they hadn't looked at this health center before uh, in Texas uh, uh, through doing FISMA audits, and they found a number of issues, and we can get into them individually, but a number of issues that it seemed to me as I read this report were the just the basic, as I said, basic blocking and tackling that people talk about all the time when it comes to security challenges in government. Am I reading this work right? Am I thinking about this the right way as someone who's done this for a long time, John? Welcome. Uh, hey, Francis, I, I think you're looking at it the right way. Let, let's be frank. Um, you know, uh, the VA is a complicated organization that's spread out across the country. Uh, it's very hard as an enterprise organization to keep track of everything that's going on. However, you know, you have to ask some questions here about, you know, was there sufficient attention paid to these centers? Uh, was there complacency involved? Was there sufficient training? Are they staffed properly? Was the right funding in place? Or is it really bureaucracy that's getting in the way, maybe at a local level, preventing them from doing the things they needed to do? If you, if you look at the things that the OIG report calls out, and I took the time to read it, and by the way, it's worth commenting that uh, the VA has been working on fixing these discrepancies, but simple things like configuration management, having an inventory of your systems. I mean, think about that. Uh, vulnerability management, vulnerabilities that have been around since 2013. That's their oldest. That's kind of a long time ago, Francis. Uh, systems management, half of their switches are no longer supportable by the vendor. What that means is the switches are old and there, there aren't enough out there for the vendor to see benefit in supporting them. Those are like bad things and point to problems like possibly funding or training or the contract, complacency, attention to detail. But here's the thing. You know, I'm an old aviator and I, I kind of always look at it the way I was trained in, in, in basic flight school. You aviate, you navigate, you communicate. And aviate is really fly to plane. You got to know your systems, monitor your systems, deal with emergencies, be prepared. Navigate, know where you are and know where you're going and then communicate. You got to communicate risk. I, I can't do this. I need more funding. So what are they doing to fix these things? And it's it's about tracking things. It's about establishing, I think, a cyber hygiene program that looks at what you have out there in terms of patching, uh, multi-factor authentication. You know, how are you getting these things done? They they have to look at a plan also for 
um, migrating and modernization. That might be uh, moving to some sort of hybrid cloud structure and offloading some of that problem. What's their plan to get healthy and stay healthy, which is the key thing. So if you're monitoring and tracking things, how do you stay healthy? But the other part of this, and I think this is the most important part, communicate. You know, you have a boss as a CIO or a CISO. How are you communicating risk? There's the risk that you have to accept because maybe you can't fix something. There's the risk that you can mitigate that, you know, isn't the same thing as fixing it, but there's still risk there. And then there's the risk that you fixed. How do you prioritize that? How do you address each of these things is something that needs to be communicated to leadership so they are fully aware. The OIG report should never come as a surprise. Yeah, you've told me that a number of times in the past, both uh, when you were in government and now that you've been out of government. And there are some things here. I want to make it clear. This is not all bad for the VA. There are a number of, um, of citations that the OIG makes in this work that are positives on uh, in the realm of policymaking and standard setting for uh, OIT at VA. The OIG determined that OIT's vulnerability identification process and scans were effective. Um, the IG calls VA's patch management measures significant. What it sounds to me like the disconnect is, John, is between policy setting and standard setting in Washington and getting down to the individual facility level in Texas. And that's not just a challenge for VA, I imagine. I imagine that was a challenge for you at DHS. And that was a challenge for you at DOD. And that's a challenge for any organization, agriculture that has uh, outlets all over the United States, SSA, every agency probably has the same structure and therefore the same challenge, don't, uh, don't they, John? Oh, absolutely. Francis, think about the management problem here. Uh, I, I don't know how many VA centers there are out there, but think about uh, TSA when I was at DHS, the Transportation Security Administration. There are over 440 airports, 440 airports. That is very distributed, right? That's a huge problem to keep track of and make sure everyone's staying in line. But but a part of it is you have to empower the people below you to do things. And as I learned in the Navy, you've got to hold people accountable to doing the right thing. And that's part of what's going on here that the CIO at the VA level needs to somehow get his arms around. However, and I got to give him credit here, in, in, in an enterprise system that is much easier said than done, um, it is a hard thing to do. Um, so. There are a lot of good things mentioned in this report, but the things that need to be fixed need to be put on some sort of um, plan. And that plan requires time and effort to get it there. You know, dealing with something similar when I was in Navy required us to look at the leadership and focus in on, hey, what was the staffing requirements? What was the separation of duties between people who were doing research and development work on the network versus the people who had to do cyber? How do you resolve those conflicts? Like the point I'm making here, Francis, is at an enterprise level, it's easy to set up big rules, but sometimes those rules, when they're brought down to that lower level, cause a conflict and challenges. And I could see that particularly in a healthcare situation where the care of the patient might be 
more important, right, urgency to get on the network and do something than actually fixing the system. And, you know, I've signed ATOs that required uh, knowledge and awareness of HIPAA and that balance between the privacy of the patient and making sure the patient's are prioritized properly in terms of their health care could be tricky at that lower level versus at that enterprise high level. Mm-hmm. What's the mechanics, John? What are the mechanics that you undertook to make sure in, in some time window following up that the stuff that you put in place actually happened? Short of the inspector general having to come along behind you again at some point and say, okay, we checked and everything's fine. Yeah, well, you know, you really don't want the inspector general coming in. Behind you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because you know, uh, unlike you know, some people, I don't think all attention is good attention. So, but what you have to do, I think, in a situation like this, is you have to monitor and track. And, and hey, we're going to have a drumbeat here, and we're going to watch you for improvement in these particular areas. So sometimes it's it's the old uh, sunlight therapy, right? Sunlight does kill bacteria and fungus sometimes. And if you put a little sunlight on an issue, people begin to focus on it because it's important and they want to get back in the shade. All right, John Zangardi, great insight as always, my friend. Thanks for joining me today. You're welcome, Francis. Good to see you. You can find a link to that VAIG report in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The cloud is the driver behind Citizenship and Immigration Services' digital transformation. The agency's chief information security officer says the agency was using zero trust to secure the cloud before it knew it was even doing it. Shane Barney is the CISO at CIS. He tells FedScoop's Wyatt Cash how big the job has been to convert from paper to digital and then to keep that infrastructure secure. Its mission is to support the legal immigration process. So we're sort of the people who process immigration requests, you know, that might be a work permit, that might be citizenship, um, you know, or we also support the refugee and asylum processes as well. So, you know, obviously there's there's, there's always a little uh, little politics wrapped around those two, those topics, um, as I'm sure everyone's aware. Uh, and, and so we tend to stay in the middle of things quite a bit, um, and it makes for a very active and, and, and kind of a fun agency to work for. It's a great mission to support. Um, you know, but in terms of the IT operations, obviously the, the immigration process, for those who aren't aware, is for has primarily in the past been a paper process, um, heavily paper process, and, and I can't even begin to put words around how much paper we're talking about. Um, you know, just active records alone. Um, you know, you're looking at 165 million paper files, and in these files can be several banker boxes large. So very, very, very heavy paper. Obviously, something that would be you know of interest for us would always have been digitalization and actually moving towards more of a like an e-based sort of electronic-based like immigration process. So we've had a heavy emphasis on that and have so for a number of years. Um, and this drove sort of our requirements to go to the cloud. And so as a federal agency, we moved very quickly into the cloud early on, probably sooner than anyone else, um, first to really leverage agile development processes. And so jump forward 10 years or so, and you know, now I'm an agency, it's 95% cloud-based. Um, you know, it's very normal for us to do major, several major deployments in a single day um, using our agile and sort of develop DevOps methodologies. Uh, and, and we're a very, you know, very tip of the spear sort of forward-leaning organization because of that. So you know, and in terms of support, I mean, not only do we have 28,000 or so plus employees internally, we also have to support the broader you know, world and I do mean the world because we, we support people who are not citizens, not just citizens of the United States, 
and, and you know, on an average month, that you're looking at 16 million plus accounts that were that were you know, somehow we're managing via our, our public facing systems. So it's a very dynamic environment to work in. Sounds like it. Well, and Ciso, um, talk to us a little about what are your top priorities in the next year over the short term, let's say, and maybe a little longer term, maybe over the next three years, when it comes to meeting the federal zero trust security requirements. You know, interestingly enough, we actually started on our zero trust journey many years ago, um, primarily because we were in the cloud, we recognized the value of cloud. Um, and we recognize what we could do with cloud that were that would later become more known as zero trust. We just called it good cyber hygiene. But you know, we really were pushing, you know, pushing our, our in that direction. So we started implementing a number of things ahead of that, ahead of the head of the EO, without realizing we were going to eventually meet the CEO. So you know, we we were further along, I think, than most agencies. We'd already deployed a secrets management solution. We'd gotten a good lockdown on on at least the initial kind of asset and inventory. Piece. We had really good, we had we deployed single sign-on across our agency. We have complete 100% role-based access for all of our systems. So we, we'd really done a number of things. Um, so you'd think, oh, well, hey, we're almost done. And yeah, we're not even close. Um, you know, so you know, in terms of short-term goals, really what we're focusing on right now, you know, and I'll start with just asset inventory alone. Um, you know, a lot of times we, we talk just about users and the importance of users. And yes, users are an important part, but honestly, the asset part is far more difficult to deal with. Um, you know, you've got to not, when they talk about asset inventory, what that really talks about is the entire life cycle of an asset and, and where it lives in your environment, how it operates, where it operates, what's allowed to connect to and be authorized to do, you know, who's allowed to access it and when are they allowed to access it, what kind of data can transit it and, and live on it. All these sorts of things have to be dealt with as part of your inventory asset. You've got to be able to onboard and offboard it and control that entire process to within an nth degree. Um, and, and you've got to know when things aren't yours. Um, it, it, I can't under I can't state that enough. Um, you know, it's you shouldn't be able to plug something into your environment and and not know what it is. Um, and and it's, that's a really just a bare bones basic requirement for anything you're going to do in, in zero trust. So we're really finite. You know, we we did a really great job of doing the inventory. Now we're really working on getting a really good fine control over that, so that we have that onboarding and offboarding process in place. We hope to have that finished up this next fiscal year. Um, we're also heavily, obviously, you know, as far as we are with single sign on, we're not. We're not perfect. Um, there's definitely things I need to do. Um, one of the big hurdles that we, we're going to overcome here, I, I think by December actually, is deploying our first our, as, as a public-facing uh, identity provider. Um, you know, if you're doing true zero trust modeling, you're you're going to get rid of your parameters, and, and you're going to have a public-facing way of which you interface and and and, and identify and, and and control your identities. Um, that is an IDP, an identity provider. There are a number of solutions out there that do this. Number of vendors that provide it. USCIS is given kind of how we operate, we decide to build our own. Um, but, you know, getting that in place, is, is, these are all just basic building blocks of things that we have to have in order for us to really progress to those next levels. Now, fortunately for me, we've done other things that, that is going to help us so we don't kind of have to do those. On the user side, we've already deployed, you know, sing, we've already deployed a, you know, a, a, a solution for doing password vaulting. We've got just-in-time for authentication for our, our, our administrators. We also developed a virtualized POV, a privilege access workstation. So we've got a lot of those components in place, which kind of puts us further along that paradigm. Um, but that said, we still have some progress we need to make, especially for users where we're, how we transfer internally and how we do inventory of our users and kind of maintain that user base is really challenging. I, I think longer term, we're really gonna be focusing in on our, our data. Um, for me, you know, defining the authorizations, the conditions, the entitlements to access data represents probably 85% of the effort for zero trust. Um, and it's going to be the biggest focal point for us moving forward. 
Appreciate that. And, uh, you know, one of the things that as we talk to CISOs that it sounds like uh, still a struggle is how to implement zero trust across multiple networks, uh, multiple domains, multiple departments, and, and functional silos. What's your plan or what, what, how are you approaching this ability to uh, implement zero trust across these uh, various domains? So that's kind of, you know, it's interesting you say that. That's actually something we faced. Um, when we were making a transition between cloud and prem, um, we were we were exactly that. We had a foot in both environments. We were we were trying to straddle both. We had identity providers in both environments. They didn't always necessarily talk very well. Our roles were not really well controlled. Um, our, our first really one of the first things I did as a CISO. One of the things I'm very fortunate is I own the ICAM program. Not all CISOs do. Um, and because of that, I was able to sort of like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna fix this. Like we can, we can fix this. We not only do we have the capabilities to fix it, we have the technology stack to do it. We have a have a security reason to do that. Um, and, and so, in one of the solutions, or the way we did that, is we really began centralizing how we did that. Um, and, and you know, there's lots of ways you can do that. As a CISO, I can always wave the magic ATO, you know, hammer and, and threaten your ATO, and I'm not gonna authorize your system to operate if you don't do these things. You know, that's always there. But we found, we, we took a different approach. We, we, I refer to it as the easy button solution, where we actually provided a service to the dev teams where we said, listen, we're going to accept all the responsibility for building these modules, these interfaces, these, these API gateways for you to leverage for doing identity and role access. All you have to do is point your devices our way, and we will take care of the rest. You know, they were a little skeptical at first because dev teams love to do things themselves. But you know what? When they were able to offload that capability, that easy button approach sort of just drove it by itself. Um, it's been the sort of, once we kind of saw, realized, I mean, I would love to say we were just being that forward thinking. We weren't, it was just the way we approached it. But the minute we realized how successful it was, we began applying in other areas. Um, and so roles were the exact same way, we did the exact same process. And, and now if I even like begin to threaten to, to remove something, they'll come forward and fund it or offer to help us do something because the service to them is so valuable that it's worth them keeping helping us keep it alive. Um, you know, so when we deployed our secrets management solution, we did the same thing. We provided it just was an easy button solution and they, they just wanted to do it. Um, and one of the other short term goals we're working on, actually, I should have mentioned it was our certificate management and automating that. Um, that actually was the easiest sell of them all because all, all teams take dealing with certificates um, and they are the basis by which you're going to do identification and, and role based access for your for your devices. So getting our handle on that and automating that and removing that responsibility from the dev teams. And, and from our engineering teams has just been the biggest win for us. You know, it, we can't move fast enough. So for my approach is always taking that easy button approach, providing services as a security organization that going to encourage them to move in that direction. Well, I suspect more agencies may be uh, wanting to give you a call about how to get that I, easy I button. Quite a few, actually, you'd be surprised. <laughs> well, let me talk about another area of concern, and that's about um, you know the longstanding requirements in government uh, for uh, compliance requirements. FISMA obviously comes to mind, and OMB just recently put out a new memo about uh, you know kind of certifying uh, software that everyone's using. Talk to us a little bit about what concerns do you have about you know, uh, meeting federal zero trust adoption and still falling in line with these longer standing compliance requirements? So there's sometimes, you know, in, in my line of work, sometimes we will view, you know, the, the security sort of compliance check the box security approaches is not necessarily in parallel with good security practice. And, and, and I would be lying if I said that's not sometimes the case. 
Um, sometimes we're checking boxes on things that absolutely make no sense whatsoever from a security perspective, but we're required to do it because someone says we have to do it. Um, and I do have some concerns wrapped around that. I mean, you know, we, we, we want every, I think everybody in the federal space, state and locals as well, they want to secure their enterprises. Nobody wants to have beyond the Washington front post page from the Washington Post front page and and not and because your agency got owned because you weren't doing good practices. That all being said, you know, those audits are very costly for us to conduct. You know, they, they require a lot of resources on our side. There's a lot of back and forth. Sometimes the people who are conducting the audits don't have quite the technological understanding of our environment that we do. So they don't always understand our responses very well. It's a lot, it's a lot of work. You know, but we're, we're trying to be a little prescriptive that I mean, the nice thing about having like these executive memos, uh, as well as the stuff coming from OMB, is that it gives us a framework for we know what's going to be audited. We know what they're going to come after and ask us for. Um, and so part of our planning efforts has always been keeping that in the back of our minds so we know how to respond to those appropriately and provide them the information they need. I, I don't see anything, you know, as a federal agency, I'm okay with compliance. Compliance is how we ensure that we are, you know, spending the public's money in appropriate ways. It, it provides good transparency. I have no issues with that. A big, big fan, big supporter. I think it should happen. Um, my, my big worry is when compliance gets in the way of good security and, and we have to make sure we seek a good balance on that. I will say that, you know, almost without fail, there's been good dialogue on a lot of these things coming out. Um, we've been surprised by a few things here and there, but generally speaking, we, we, we've had good dialogue with them. So we have some input of what they're asking for. Because I want to, if they're going to, obviously the audits are going to happen. I want them to be of as much value as possible so that when they come out, I can use that as a tool to you know, either request additional resources or new budgeting or you know, a new technology that we need to get in place because we're not meeting some requirement. What I don't want to do is have to do that for something that doesn't really add to the overall security of my enterprise. Shane Barney, the Chief Information Security Officer at CIS with FedScoop's Wyatt Cash. You can find a link to the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow with George Duchak of DLA. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.